Oh, well, welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Wednesday. And we begin with breaking economic numbers from the United States and what can only be called some highly worrisome new reads on U.S. consumer price inflation. The U.S. announcing just a short time ago prices rising at a much hotter than expected 9.1 percent year over year rate last month. That's higher than the 8.8 percent that was expected by many analysts. The core rate of that CPI number that excludes volatile food and energy prices also coming in higher than expected too. Now, if there's any consolation here, it's that today's numbers are relatively backward looking, not recent enough to catch the significant drop that we've seen in US petrol prices over the past few weeks. That said, all the recent talk that we may be near an inflationary top in the United States appears premature yet again. As you would imagine, a negative response from US investors pre-market futures now pointing to a much lower open on Wall Street. Tech stocks seeing the biggest drop with the Nasdaq set to fall more than 2%. As you can see below that line, there was a softer picture over in Europe as well. Much later in the show, we'll talk about this. Uh, but first, let's uh, move to what we're seeing in the Middle East and President Biden's mission in the Middle East. After being greeted in Tel Aviv by the new Prime Minister, Yai Lipid, a short time ago, the President had this to say. Minister Lapid, it's an honor to once again stand with, uh, with friends and visit the independent Jewish state of Israel. President Nixon was the first American president to visit Israel in 1974. I was actually, my first visit was, as you mentioned, as a young United States senator from Delaware. In 1973, just a few weeks before the Yom Kippur War, I had the privilege of spending time with Prime Minister Golda Meir. I'll never forget, I was sitting next to a gentleman on my right when there were AIDS. His name was Rabin. I look back on it all now, and I realize that I had the great honor of living part of the great history of this country. And I did say, and I say again, you need not be a Jew to be a Zionist. The fact is that since then, I've known every single prime minister and it's been an honor. Formed strong working relations with each of them. And now this is my 10th visit. And later this hour, he'll meet the Israeli defense minister before going to Jerusalem to pay his respects at the Holocaust Memorial. His trip, of course, also includes a visit to the West Bank and Saudi Arabia later this week. Hadis Gold is following events from Jerusalem for us. Hadis's first time, first visit to the Middle East as president, as he was saying there, though he's been many times. He's expected to embrace the Trump era Abraham Accords that, of course, that normalize relations between Israel and many of the Arab nations. How does he plan to expand upon that during this trip? What's to come? Well, Julia, that's really top of mind for the Israelis is expanding upon these regional alliances, especially with this direct travel he's taking from Tel Aviv to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, really being seen as a symbol as what a lot of this trip is about. Now, normalizing relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia for the Israelis would be the jewel in the crown of the Israeli-Arab normalization. But I should caution, nobody's expecting that to suddenly be assigned or on, sa on Saturday he's going to announce a new normalization agreement. But the Israelis do say that they are expecting small, you could call them baby steps in that direction. These are going to be things that might seem small but would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. Things like allowing all flights to and from Israel 
to just fly over Saudi airspace. That's not something that's possible right now for all flights. That will cut off flight times for people going to places like India and Asia. Those will be important steps. There will also be discussions about forming this sort of regional air defense alliance. Uh, President Biden right now is expected to actually tour some of these defense uh, mechanisms, the Iron Dome that the U.S. already supports with a billion dollars in funding just recently, but also a new Iron Beam. This is a laser defense system that's supposed to be able to shoot things like drones out of the air with lasers. The Israelis will be trying to show it off to the Americans, try to get some supporting, try to get some funding for it. And all of this regional alliance building, Julia, it's all being done, of course, with an eye towards Iran. This is a shared concern between all of these countries. And as we see these uh, talks about returning to a nuclear agreement seemingly falling apart, another priority for the Israelis on this trip will be once again pushing the Americans away from return to an Iranian nuclear deal, even though the Americans, even though President Biden still says that they prefer diplomacy, the Israelis will be trying to push President Biden on a coherent strategy, a coherent plan B on how they plan to counter a possible nuclear Iran and also Iran's regional activities. Israel often says that Iran is behind terrorist organizations that harm Israel's security. They will want to hear from the Americans some support about that. And the Israelis do say that Biden and new Prime Minister Yair Lapid will sign what's being called the Jerusalem Declaration. This will be a memorandum. They call it a blueprint on the bilateral relationship over the next few years. And in that memorandum, they say that it will include an American commitment to never allow Iran to obtain nuclear weapons and acknowledging that Israel will defend itself by itself. But Julia, one thing we won't hear a lot about on this trip is any sort of real steps towards a peace process with the Palestinians. Yes, mm -hmm. President Biden will be visiting Bethlehem, will be meeting with the Palestinian Authority leadership on Friday, but they're not expecting, he even said this in his speech, any sort of big moves towards an actual two-state solution. Instead, there's going to be small steps, confidence-building measures that Israel has already announced, just because there doesn't seem to be the political will, both internally, Israelis and Palestinians, their political systems right now are a bit calcified. And the White House doesn't really seem to have the will itself to try and put itself out there and try to move forward on any sort of real peace process. Julia. Focused on achievable goals. I think that's the message, for better or worse. Hadis Gold, thank you for that. Okay, now to the escalating crisis in Sri Lanka, where the Speaker of Parliament says he's still waiting for the president to submit a formal letter of resignation. They have spoken by phone, I believe. President Rajapaska fled to the Maldives earlier today. His last act, though, was to make the prime minister the acting president, a move being opposed by angry protesters who broke into the prime minister's office. Will Ripley joins us now. Well, no surprise, given what we've been talking about over the last day or so, that, that people are protesting this. They wanted to be rid of both the president and the prime minister and now they've got the prime minister it seems as acting president and still no formal resignation letter from president rajapaksa himself who uh you know look it, this is this has been something that has been building up in sri lanka for so many months when you have your living expenses triple because of inflation, people can no longer afford to eat three or even sometimes two meals a day. People are trying to survive on one meal a day because that's all they can afford. They can't get medicine. They certainly can't get fuel because there, there are such short supplies inside the country itself. And so people who have been taken to the streets, people who stormed the president's palace, people who are occupying the palace, 
to this day uh, and have now stormed the prime minister's office and even stormed the state TV broadcasting center. These are people who are desperate and who are angry and who demanded uh, that the prime minister and the president step down. Now they have the president who took a military jet to the Maldives, where it's essentially he's kind of waiting things out on an island paradise as people on the ground in Colombo are, are suffering and struggling, not just Colombo, all over Sri Lanka. And in Colombo, you have an almost anarchy kind of thing that's developing in the streets with people so angry that they're that they're once again starting to clash with the police and protesters. Now, there was a state of emergency that has now been called off, but there's a military council that the acting president, Wickham Rashinge, has appointed that is uh, with the intent of restoring law and order, as they put it. And they'll be issuing commands directly to the police and the military. This could really lead to uh, one of two things. It could lead to the establishment of this all-party government uh, that the acting president has been promising. Uh, the parliament could uh, theoretically uh, go ahead with its plan to elect a new president as soon as next week. Uh, but it could also lead to a very real suppression of the protests, uh, violence against the protests, uh, much of like what was seen in the Arab Spring and other, uh, you know, democracy uprisings that have then been really, really crushed. So the future of, of Sri Lanka's democracy is really hanging by a thread here. Uh, and uh, what's going to be very crucial is to watch what happens with the president's resignation. Will the prime minister follow suit, the acting president now? Will he follow suit and resign? Who's going to be selected to lead this country out of the worst financial crisis in more than 70 years, 51 or so billion dollars in debt, so much debt they can't even start to pay off their creditors. The IMF isn't talking to Sri Lanka much about a bailout because there doesn't really a credible solution in terms of paying back any of this debt. And you have all of these people, 22 million people in Sri Lanka, many of them uh, who were living comfortably on an income that now can barely afford the basic necessities of life. There's no hot water because there's no fuel, barely getting enough food, can't you know get medicine for a loved one if they're sick. It's a desperate situation. And will this new government be able to be put into place? Can they turn things around? Or are these protesters essentially going to be violently suppressed? Could we see more injuries? Could we see more clashes and violence uh, on the streets of Colombo and other areas in Sri Lanka, Julia? And we have to, we really all, as the world, need to watch very closely what's going to be happening in Sri Lanka in the coming hours, days and weeks ahead. You're asking all the right questions. This kind of transition of power tends to be messy. One of the questions I was going to ask you, and you're sort of asking the question yourself, it's actually unclear at this stage who exactly is in charge. And when we're looking at scenes like this, and we can show our viewers again that the protests that we saw um, earlier today, it's important to understand who the military sides with going forward. And they, right, yeah, and you're right, Julia, they side with, with the Rajapaska brothers because they, uh, and particularly the, the president who's now in exile, he was under his brother, when his brother was president, he was in charge of defense. And they were the ones who uh, really violently brought about an end to Sri Lanka's decades-long civil war, uh, giving them great popularity and loyalty within the ranks of the military. And as long as they have the protection of the military, they've been able to be shielded from the anger of the people. It was, you know, they were, they were uh, put on a naval vessel and whisked away when the president's palace was being raided. And it was a military aircraft that actually flew uh, President uh, uh, Rajapaksa to the uh, Maldives, along with his wife and perhaps other family members, uh, because they couldn't get on a commercial flight because the immigration officers at the airport wouldn't process their passports without them being in the queue with regular folks. And when other members of the family had been in the queue, there were actually, uh, you know, clashes and scuffles that took place. That's how that's how real the 
anger is right now. So, uh, you know, with, with the protection of the military, if this, can, if this current government wants to stay in place, and that includes the acting president, who was the prime minister under President Rajapaksa, Rajapaksa uh, then this could potentially uh, mean that the military could suppress uh, the, the actions that are happening in the streets if they remain loyal to, the, to this family and these two brothers who ruled the country for the better part of two decades, Julia. We'll continue to watch it very closely. Well, great to get your context. Thank you. Will Ripley there. Okay, from, from escalation to rising inflation, U.S. consumer prices rising at a 9.1 annualized rate in June. That's more than analysts expected. Even the core reading that strips out food and fuel coming in hotter than expected too. Concerning news for the Federal Reserve and, of course, consumers too. Rahel Solomon joins us now with all the details. Rahel, I was just pouring over the port report quickly there uh, in the break in food, fuel and shelter. But it's pretty broad based. All prices rising. It is broad based, sort of validating what a lot of Americans already know, that inflation is rampant. So, yes, 9.1%, which is a fresh pandemic high, a fresh 40-year high, certainly not a number that the Fed wants to see, as you pointed out. And I might add the White House wants to see 1.3% month over month. So uh, still rising there. Even when we strip out volatile categories, Julian, I think we can pull this up for you. Even when we strip out more volatile categories like energy, food prices, core inflation, 5.9% year over year. And monthly, this is really important, monthly core inflation increasing seven-tenths of a percent in June. Julia, this is the number that Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell has said wants to see come down. I'm sure he would like to see all of the numbers come down, but he has said he wants to see the month-to-month core inflation decelerate. We're not seeing that just yet. The gains, as you've mentioned, were broad-based from gasoline, shelter, food. And I want to point out, shelter especially. Of course, uh, a lot of us, we see gasoline prices every day. We, we deal with food prices every day at the grocery store. But shelter, 5.6% compared to a year ago. Julia, economists have been watching this and talking about this for quite some time. There is some real concern about affordability issues because of the increasing cost of shelter. And even when you look below the hood of shelter, the rent index rose 0.8 percent, eight tenths of a percent. That is the highest increase since 1986. So these numbers are alarming, I'm sure, to the Federal Reserve, but really a validation for Americans of what we already know, which is that inflation is rampant and it is broad based. We know the Federal Reserve will be meeting in two weeks, likely going to be talking about this report quite a bit. And the question was, will we see half a percent of an increase when they meet? Will we see three quarters of a percent? When you get numbers like this and reports like this, it appears that three quarters of a percent is just about guaranteed. And they have their work cut out for them, Julia. It is a very difficult path for the Fed at this point, especially when we get numbers like this that show inflation is still red hot. Yeah, it almost makes the decision easier for them, quite frankly, that they have to do more. But that's not good for uh, the economy and for the slowdown and the, the broader exactly. challenges that they face. Yeah, I never really understood the core reading when for lower income individuals, it's food and fuel that are a huge part of what they're spending on. And I think most of them would argue, Rahel, as you well know, I think that, that prices feel even higher than this. Huge challenges. Um, Rahel Solomon, thank you. 
Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Ukraine says heavy fighting is taking place in its eastern region of Donetsk, with Russian forces carrying out airstrikes and an intense shelling campaign. But in the south, where Kyiv claims its troops are on the offensive, the military says it's destroyed a Russian arms depot in the occupied Kherson area. CNN's Scott McLean joins us now live from Kyiv. Scott, I know you're outside the court, and I want to talk to you about that, of course. What we saw back in May was the first war criminal being jailed, sentenced to life. I know his appeal hearing is taking place today. What more can you tell us on that first? Hey, Julie, yeah, it actually just wrapped up a couple of minutes ago. We just saw the 21-year-old convicted war criminal Vadim Shishimarin walk past and he'll be sent back to prison. Uh, So the arguments were heard in this case. It got going uh, mid-afternoon and then was quickly actually paused because there were air raid sirens in the city that paused things for about an hour. When it resumed, he went back into his prisoner's box and he listened through a translator for the judge to recount exactly what happened. You'll recall that he, just four days into the war, was part of a column of Russian troops that was fired on by Ukrainian shelling. Him and four other soldiers ended up stealing a car, driving into a a nearby town where they came across a senior citizen riding a bicycle on his phone. They shot him and killed him in the head. The argument, his defense argument initially was that, look, he was ordered by a superior to shoot and to kill this man. Ultimately, though, he ended up being given the most harsh sentence that you can get in Ukraine, which is life in prison, no possibility of parole. Now, though, the argument that his lawyer is making on this appeal is that the sentence was too harsh, that they didn't take into account the fact that he was ordered to shoot, that he uh, essentially denied the request to shoot several times before ultimately relenting and pulling the trigger. They said, look, he only fired one shot. And ultimately, when the Ukrainian soldiers uh, detained him, he went voluntarily. So they said, look, His intent was never to kill a person that day. It was just the circumstances and the fact that he was scared and in a new environment that ultimately led to this tragic outcome. I did have a chance, though, to interview the prosecutor in this case. And look, he has no sympathy for this 21-year-old Russian soldier at all. He said that this ought to be an example for other Russians who are coming to this country uh, and may well commit war crimes. And I have to tell you, Julia, the one thing that really struck me in being inside the courtroom is just how young this uh, soldier is. I keep calling him a kid only because he looks like a child. Uh, He looks so, so young. He's 21, but he looks a lot lot younger than that. We won't have uh, any ruling in this until a a couple of weeks from now. The three panel judges will have to uh, take this back and and, go through the arguments. We may hear more arguments in a couple of weeks, so we won't have any um, any decision. But the hope is that the hope from uh, this Russian soldier is that his sentence would be lessened. The harshest sentence you can get in Ukraine in terms of years is 15 years. There's nothing between 15 years and life, which he's currently uh, been sentenced to. Yeah, I mean, there's so many comments to make about all of that, quite frankly. The 
the idea that he's even had the right to a trial and to an appeal at a time when the, when the war continues. Um, it's just interesting to understand what the public's response to all of this is as well, um, but a, a statement clearly being made. Scott, I want to ask you briefly about comments as well in the, in the broader offensive for the Ukrainians at this moment. President Zelensky making the point that I think NATO provided weaponry now is proving potent in their fight back in defence. What more can you tell us about that? Yeah, you'll remember that the battle for Luhansk, Julia, the Ukrainians had said, look, we made the decision to reluctantly withdraw because we were simply outgunned and outmanned. Emphasis on the outgunned part because they said that they simply lacked the artillery. If you spoke to soldiers along the front lines, they would tell you, look, for every one heavy shot we're firing, the Russians are firing 10 or 20 back in our, our direction. It simply was no contest. Now, though, as Ukraine is in the last couple of weeks getting more and more foreign weaponry actually being delivered, particularly the U.S. artillery system, the HIMARS system, um, things seem to be shifting. At least the attitude seems to be shifting, particularly in the southern part of the country where they are launching a counteroffensive. Just the other day, they hit what they said was a cache of ammunition not far from the city of Kherson. And while President Zelensky didn't explicitly say that that uh, that cache of weapons was or ammunition was hit with the HIMARS system. He sure hinted at it. Listen. The occupiers have already felt very well what modern artillery is, and they will not have a safe rear anywhere on our land, which they occupy. They have felt that the operations of our reconnaissance officers to protect their homeland are much more powerful than any of their special operations. Russian soldiers, and we know this from interceptions of their conversations, are truly afraid of our armed forces. And Julia, one other thing to mention, and that is that the Ukrainian foreign minister was asked by CNN today about the possibility of any kind of a peace deal or even the prospect of peace talks. And the answer that we got was, well, uh, at this point, there's really nothing to discuss. Julia? Mm. Scott, great to have you with us. Thank you. Scott McLean from Kyiv. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. futures are pointing to a weaker open on Wall Street after yet another shockingly high read on U.S. inflation numbers. Although I will point out we're a bit off the lows of the pre-market session earlier. Prices on the consumer level rising 9.1% last month on a year-over-year -year basis. That's higher than pretty much every Wall Street estimate going into this release. It's the fastest CPI rise since 1981. Prices up by a greater than expected 1.3% month over month too. All this reflected in the action in the U.S. bond markets to the yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury surging to over 3% in anticipation of further aggressive action by the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates as it fights a so far losing battle to tame prices. Traders have already fully priced in an aggressive three quarters of a percent rate hike at the next FOMC meeting later this month. Investors bracing for further tests this week as well. U.S. banks begin reporting second quarter results tomorrow. Their forward guidance and their thoughts about global recessionary and inflationary threats will also be key. I'm pleased to say we're joined by Jason Furman. He's former chairman of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisers and currently a professor at Harvard's University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Jason, great to have you with us. Um, Ouch, is all I can say. It's a horrible data release. Absolutely. 
Um, you know, look, I was prepared for an outdated increase in gasoline prices because the numbers don't capture the recent declines. Mm. I was not prepared for the big acceleration in core inflation with just increases spread throughout. Uh, very few special stories you can tell to, you know, ignore today's number. You gave the one little silver lining there, which is that, that petrol or gas prices in the United States have come down, come down since this, this measure was collected. But it's tough to argue that any of the other measures uh, can be controlled in any other way but, but more aggressive rate hikes. And that, I think, will be the takeaway for the Federal Reserve today, too, looking at these numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think they can and will stick with the 75 basis points at the next meeting. What they need to be clear about is that they're going to be watching the data. And if there's no relief on this, they're going to continue to increase rates at a fast pace in the fall into next year. I think also this should push Congress to act and pass deficit reducing um, legislation as well. What more can they do? Jason, because they have been sort of scratching around trying to come up with with options, some better than others, potential fuel tax rises, um, all sorts of things. Um, What would be the most beneficial here? What about removing of tariffs on China? Is that going to move the needle? Look, that would help a little bit. Um, We should do it. There's a lot of reasons we should do it. But Congress could pass a law that reduces prescription drug spending, that raises some taxes, reinvest some of the money in things like climate change and health care, but on balance um, cuts the deficit by a substantial amount. Um, that's, there's still time um, for Congress to do that this year, and I'd, I'd like to see that, ha- that happen. A, target, a targeted Build Back Better spending plan, Jason? How bad an idea would this be at this moment? Right. That's basically what I'm talking about. I mean, I don't know what name you want to attach to it, um, but something like instead of the large original one, you take something else, you save, let's say, a trillion dollars, you reinvest half of that money in things like climate change. The other half is for deficit reduction, helps cool the economy, slow down inflation. This is mainly the Fed's job, but Congress can help a little bit. How concerned are you by the opposite to this in that people will take fright at these numbers. They know how much they're paying, that the Federal Reserve now has a pretty firm mandate to continue to hike aggressively in order to control this. At some point, the economy does slow. And I know you've already said, look, prices, we have to accept that prices are going to remain high this year and and perhaps into next year as well. There is a balance to be found there somewhere. Is it just too early to be talking about it? No, I think, I think you, it's never too early to talk about how to get that balance right. And that's why I think the Fed doesn't need to do more than 75 basis points. Look, if all I knew was today's data release, I would be completely panicked. But I also know that last week we saw that nominal wage growth slowed. I also know that a lot of contraction is already in the system, in the housing sector and in mm. consumer spending. So those tools the Fed has deployed are just starting to work. They're working in the labor market. I think price growth will slow um, because of that. I'm not sure, but uh, there's enough other data out there that says 75 is fine. This is not the only information we have about the economy. Yeah, but it goes back to your point about watching the, the, the detailed data so closely now. I want to ask you about jobs because I've been confused by jobs, I'll be honest, for the last two years, quite frankly, really, since the the pandemic began. And and the data is really puzzling. But we 
arguably we're in a contraction in the first quarter, perhaps in the second quarter in this country too. And yet when you look at the jobs data, it's diametrically opposed to that. Can you explain whether it's hoarding by people because they don't want to let workers go because they think they'll struggle to rehire them or they might have to hire them back at higher wages? Do you think the jobs market slows to meet the other data or the other data perhaps will be revised higher? Because I'm very confused. <laughs> Look, I'm very confused too, Julie. I wish okay, I knew good. the answer to that question. Um, I think part of it is, yeah, employers were scarred last year by being unable to hire, so they're getting people when they can. They also need to make up for shortages. They went into this spring with sort of their existing workforce run ragged because everyone was doing two jobs uh, for the person they couldn't hire. So they needed to basically do that backfilling. Jobs growth certainly will, not certainly, it very likely um, will slow. Mm. But, um, you know, the other thing I'd say is that it's possible that some of the economic growth slowing that we're seeing is, is itself transitory. It's things like inventories that are very volatile. And so businesses think they'll get decent revenue growth over the next year. So why not hire? Full confidence in the Fed, Jason, very quickly. I think they've caught up uh, they got behind the curve, but they've really caught up now. And I think they're, they're in a good place in their policy. OK, great to chat to you. Thank you for your wisdom. And um, we'll watch this space. I'm glad we're both confused and that you're willing to admit it. <laughs> Jason Furman, <laughs> professor at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Great to chat, as always. OK, after the break, see you in court. Elon Musk's possible motives for pulling him out of his deal to buy Twitter. A forensic analysis with Dan Ives. Next. Welcome back to First Move with steep losses for U.S. stocks in early trade today after that stronger than expected read on U.S. price inflation prices, as we've been discussing throughout the show, rising at a much higher than expected 9.1% rate over the past 12 months. Today's inflation read reflected in euro dollar, the exchange rate price action with the European currency and the U.S. dollar near parity once again, as you can see, dollar higher because it's anticipating more rate hikes, more rate hikes, far more than the European Central Bank can do, and therefore euro dollar lower, a signal that investors believe the Fed will have to be even more aggressive in its policy tightening in the coming months. The euro weakness also, of course, reflecting the tough spot that the European Central Bank is in as it tries to raise interest rates, while at the same time anticipating a possible complete cutoff of Russian gas supplies later this year that could tip Europe into further and deeper recession. Now, Twitter stock is higher as we speak as lawyers for the stock social media giant prepare for a showdown in court with Elon Musk. They want to force him to follow through with his $44 billion takeover deal. The lawsuit was filed in Delaware on Tuesday after Musk said late last week that he was walking away, claiming Twitter had breached their agreement. He's accusing the company of withholding data on the real number of bots on the platform. Dan Ives is managing director and analyst at Wedbush Securities and has been following this story for us now for months. Dan, great to have you on. You call it code red for Twitter. Uh, they have no choice, no other buyer options. The best option in this case then is to sue. Look, but Twitter, it's been a fiasco and pulling mm. no punches. I mean, they're going into court, you know, to looking to enforce that deal. And look, Musk, I think it's a black eye. And, and ultimately for Twitter, I think the view of the street, it's almost an iron fist type of upper standing going in to court versus where Musk sits. So I think Twitter feels good in terms of going into Delaware. 
part of the Pandora's box of this moment, and admittedly there are many Pandora's boxes associated with this whole shenanigan, I think, um, is that the question mark over bots remains. And, and surely Twitter needs to address that question as much for themselves as for, for the deal with Elon Musk, whether or not this, this takes place. It's sort of a with or without him. Everyone needs to be confident about the level of bots involved with Twitter. Well, that's why it's really been a nightmare for Twitter, because yeah. you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And as that all gets sort of, you know, exposed or really focused on in terms of the court over the coming months, potentially a year. Look, I think right now that's why it's been headwinds. I almost caught a category five storm, not just from employees, advertisers and Wall Street, because there's skepticism now about the metrics, about the company, the monetization. And that's why Twitter backs against the wall. And it's really almost a Game of Thrones battle going into Delaware versus Musk, who obviously, you know, this has been a soap opera since it started in April. You think fair value is for Twitter is what, 25 to $30 without this deal? I mean, we can show the share price where it was when Musk made the original offer. And obviously what we have to bear in mind is the entire tech sector has taken a pummeling since then. But, you know, you have to ask the question, was this thing ever worth $55? Clearly the price was there, but but really was it ever? Look, I mean, this was a complete head scratcher from the beginning. And the, <laughs> what he was paying in terms of 5420 that was miles away from what I view as fair value as well as any other bidder. So, so now when you look at the stock, I mean, we think core fair value, $30, worst case, 25 But ultimately, it's going to be viewed as damaged goods in terms of any potential buyer. And now Twitter, you know, really is going to go through some dark days ahead. Because just as you said, there's the legal proceedings, a long and ugly court battle, but then day-to-day navigating, which really is unprecedented challenges, you know, w- w- which are now starting to build up. Yeah, the price you're willing to pay for perceived power, uh, because there does seem to be a gap here. Who wins, Dan? What are you telling investors? Look, first of all, I don't think there's a winner. I think it's really ultimately losers in terms of when it comes to Musk and Twitter. I think going into court, it likely ends in some sort of negotiated settlement. I think that's the view, you know, depending on how ultimately Delaware, if they enforce the deal, For Musk, and I think for Tesla, it's been an overhang. And and, and I think right now, Twitter, we view as sort of a fair value is $30. There could be incremental in terms of what they get as a cash payment. But this is going to be get out the popcorn. This is going to be a lot of twists and turns ahead. And, you know, ultimately, Twitter never thought they'd be facing uh, Musk in Delaware court come, uh, you know, the fall. Dan, great to chat to you. I think I agree with you. There are no winners here. Dan Eyes, Managing Director at Wedbush. Thank you. OK, let me return to uh, President Biden's trip to the Middle East, which started a short time ago. He's meeting with the Israeli Defense Minister for a briefing on the Iron Dome defense system. You can see pictures of them chatting there. It's designed to intercept and destroy short-range rockets and artillery shells. Okay, ancient galaxies, emerging stars, and a distant exoplanet. These are the first sights captured by the world's most powerful space telescope. NASA's new James Webb telescope is offering an unparalleled look into our universe's history, and its work has only just begun. A look at some of those dazzling images with CNN's Rachel Crane. A portal to our universe 13 billion years ago 
colliding galaxies giving birth to new star formation, stellar and planetary nebula in all their glory, and the first glimpse inside the cloudy atmosphere of an exoplanet. An extraordinary milestone for the James Webb Space Telescope, as NASA finally revealed the breathtaking first set of images, including the deepest and sharpest infrared image of the universe to date. We're making discoveries and we really haven't even started trying yet. So uh, the promise of this uh, telescope is amazing. More than two decades in the making and a result of a $10 billion investment, Webb is the largest and most advanced telescope ever to orbit the sun and sends back its groundbreaking data from one million miles away. Every image is a new discovery, and each will give humanity a view of the universe that we've never seen before. But it's more than just a telescope. It's a time machine. The way I think about it is a portal to the ancient times of the universe. The telescope is way more than just uh, a way to look at nature. It's a way to unlock nature in new ways. And lift off. Launched on Christmas Day of 2021, James Webb is 100 times more powerful than its predecessor Hubble and makes the mysteries of the universe observable using new technologies never before launched into space. Webb transforms the invisible infrared light of the cosmos into something the human eye can see, study, and investigate. It's really our Apollo moment in science. It's, it's, we bet everything on it and we got there. Scientists see a once-in-a-generation chance to chase the big questions about our existence. How did we get here, and are we alone? And while we don't yet have the answers as it's just the beginning, scientists are already blown away by the results. This is going to be revolutionary. These are incredible capabilities that we've never had before. Rachel Crane, CNN, New York. Wow. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. For now, Marketplace Asia is up next. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.